Good morning. How's everyone doing? Uh, I'm Chris. Welcome. Uh, by this point, nine weeks in, talking about the Holy Spirit, you'd think we'd be close to exhausting the information you get about the Holy Spirit, um, but we've barely scratched the surface, y'all. Um, of all the images and metaphors given in Scripture to explain our relationship to the Holy Spirit, we've only really sat in, in depth with two metaphors. Uh, one was wind or breath, if you remember pneuma, pneumatic, and the other one was a temple, though our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. These are images, they're metaphors to help you understand what this really for many people, a very confusing part of the Godhead does and is, right? When we, what we've said for over and over for months and months, if you're just joining, months, at least two months, if you're just joining us, is the Holy Spirit tends to be that kind of, um, I don't know, weird family uncle that comes to like family reunions that everyone's kind of like, we don't know what to do with him. You know, he's part of the family, and yes, but like, we, we don't know what, just, just don't talk to him, right? So it just depends on what kind of church you grew up in. A lot of people don't have that experience, but most people have some sort of stigma in, in some ways that is actually not biblical um, that comes when we talk about the Holy Spirit. We've just been digging into what is the biblical portraits of the Holy Spirit, Right? So a lot of times we're going to come to these conclusions based on, oh, well, he said this, and I heard this one time, and I went to this church, and they did this one time, so I guess that's the Holy Spirit. Well, dude, what's the Bible actually say? And let's just sit with it. Today, we sit with a really uh, fascinating metaphor used in Ephesians 1. Um, in this, with this metaphor, I'm just hoping, again, well, all we're trying to do, y'all, is clarify for you in your heart and in your mind what is, who is the Holy Spirit and what he does, and that's our hopes for today. Let me pray for us. Is that okay? Let me pray for us, and then we'll just jump right into it. Jesus... I just pray that you would, your spirit would come and you'd give clarity in our hearts and minds. God, there's a million things going on in the lives represented at these seats right now. A million anxieties, Lord. There's, there's cares, there's concerns, God. There's sins, there's failures, there's successes, Lord. There's marriages and parents. There's all, of everything that's represented right now with these people in front of me, I ask that you'd speak peace, God. Would you come, Holy Spirit? Would you speak peace to our hearts so we could just sit with your scripture, just marinate in your word and let it form us to be a certain kind of people? In Jesus' name we pray this, amen. Now, I know you know what a metaphor is, but humor me for just a minute, okay? And let me get it fresh in our minds. Um, a metaphor is how we discover, how we begin to discover an unknown idea or thing or, you know, whatever, movie, whatever, right? And the way we begin to understand this thing is by comparing it to something we know, right? That's a metaphor. We take an unknown idea. We say, well, that idea is kind of like, you know what this is. It's like this idea. Well, these two things are kind of alike. And then, aha, I have some idea of what this thing is that I've never known what it is before, right? Um, Jesus did this almost without exception. Whenever he taught, he'd say things like, the kingdom of God is like. That's a simile, right? As or like. In, in the Greek, it's parable, or actually parabole. That's Greek, parable. You know what that word means? It means to throw something next down. Throw something down next. Sorry, dyslexia. Um, it means to throw something down next to another thing. That's what a parable is. He's throwing something down next to this thing. He's saying this thing is like that thing. It's a metaphor. It's an attempt to bridge a gap between the unknown and the known by placing the two beside one another. Uh, so if, if there's something that's totally new, never heard of it before. If someone said to you, I, what's a platypus? <laughs> 
Well, you'd say, okay, well, do you know what an otter is? Okay, it's got that body. It's got the tail's a beaver. You've just seen a beaver tail? Okay. And then have you seen a duck? Bill? It's got the bill of a duck. There you go. Oh, and it lays egg like a chicken. Yeah. Metaphor. It's easy, right? One of the rich and stimulating aspects of the Bible is its pervasive use of metaphor and simile and parable. For the thoughtful reader who picks up the word of God, it almost provides endless um, avenues of meditation and exploration. So I know you knew that, but I just wanted to get it straight in our head as we jump into this. I want to get it fresh in our minds. In Ephesians 1, Paul uses a really compelling metaphor for the Holy Spirit. And if we have the patience to sit with it, to savor it, to let it roll around in our minds and hearts. Dude, listen to me. It could change your life, bro. It could change your life. You get the patience to walk through this with me right now. All right, so let's just read two verses and let's get into it. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory, So it says, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit, and he's a guarantee of our inheritance. Now, in the ESV, which is the translation we're reading right now, the the analogy is not super clear. KJV calls it earnest money. He says the Holy Spirit is the earnest of our inheritance. NIV calls him a deposit. CSV calls him a down payment. NASB translates it, who is the first installment of our inheritance. So what does that language mean for us right now today? And what does it tell us about the nature of the Holy Spirit? Who's bought a house? Man, love it, right? Who's trying to buy a house right now? God have mercy on your soul. Okay. Um, When you bought a house, you had to put forth earnest money to secure a contract. A deposit, a down payment is a way you as a buyer say, I have commitment to see this through, bro. I want to buy this thing, and I want to buy it so much so that I'm going to put my money where my mouth is. Stop talking to other sellers. Put under contract on the sign, and let's get into negotiations, right? It shows the buyer is earnestly wanting to make a purchase. Deposits weed out the flakes, right? (laughs) This way, the seller doesn't waste a bunch of time with a bunch of people who are really not sure if they want it or not. They want to say, hey, if you really want this, you prove it and give me some money right now. All right, you want to buy this? All right, put some money on the line, and then we'll chat. Earnest money deposit is the buyer saying, dude, I want this so much. I'm willing to give you a little taste right now. You like how that tastes? Well, I got more where that came from. Right? Right? Just so you will stop talking to other people. I'm going to give you, I'm going to put my money where my mouth is right now so that you will stop talking to other people about the prospect of you selling it to them. I want you. Well, we we jumped metaphor, didn't we? I want the house. (laughs) All right? That's how deposits work. Got it? No one got it. Great. Sweet. All right, now, let's dig into the metaphor. We know earnest money. We know deposits. What do we not know? Well, we don't know who the Holy Spirit is and what he does, right? Here, he's saying the Holy Spirit is like a deposit given to you by God, a guarantee, of what's to come. What's that mean? If this is true, what does it say about the Holy Spirit's relationship with us? What is he supposed to do? Here, God is answering a universal question of the human condition. That, despite all of our religious doctrine, this question 
will work itself out in a variety of ways, almost constantly in the human soul. Every soul, what's the question he's answering? Every soul with an almost visceral desperation will agonize over the answer to this question, does anybody want me? Does anybody want me? Am I valuable? And how do I know? And on what grounds does my value stand, right? Now, we might struggle with this in different intensities based on the season of life you're in, but every one of us, at some point of our lives, will struggle through your own perceived sense of worth and value and will look in all sorts of places and go through surprising efforts to secure it. Our paper theology may be great, right? You can write papers on substitutionary atonement. You can listen to the right podcast, write books, have a long list of things that you point to as to why you think rightly about God and completely miss the forest for the trees in this specific area of God answering this question of your value. I heard someone once say around every person's neck, every person universally, every person of all time is an invisible sign that says, do you think I'm valuable? And of course... We go about all, all sorts of ways to prove our value and worth, don't we? Especially when we're uncertain of the answer. When we have questions in our own mind about our value and significance as people, we can't stop seeking and searching for the answer to this question, what does my value rest on, right? Some people will work their fingers to the bone, that's me, to prove I will kill myself and my relationships to prove I am valued. But you know why? productivity, <laughs> time management. Some will spend untold fortunes to buy bigger houses, better cars, newer clothes, if it will only prove our worth. If it'll only prove to me and the world, I'm somebody. Huh? People will starve themselves. They'll stick their finger down their throat till they throw up over and over and over again, become emaciated, malnourished skeletons if it will only answer the question of personal value. They'll bully, manipulate, cheat, lie, steal, start wars, commit violence against their fellow man if it promises in any way to secure a positive answer to the question, am I valuable? Am I significant? And from where do I derive meaning and value? in life. It might not be a stretch to say for some people there is hardly any action that is not motivated by a desire to secure their own sense of value and worth in their eyes and the, in, in the others. Would you say that's a stretch? I wouldn't. See, I was right. Huh? See, I knew what I was doing. See, I am valuable, right? The desperation of this struggle, which all of us can relate to whether we want to admit to it or not, may be most clearly seen in youth, right? But man, certainly not dormant in the most mature adult. We must know the answer to the question, does anybody want me? Does anybody want me? But don't you see what God is saying to you right now through his word? Don't you see what he's saying? He's saying to the workaholic, to the shopaholic, to the anorexic, to the insecure, you don't have to prove your worth anymore. He's saying... Rest from your toil. Rest from your buying. Rest from your self-hatred. Rest from your frantic desperation because I want you. That's what God is saying to you right now. I want you. 
I've established your worth by the virtue of my desire for you. Huh? God is proving the earnestness of his desire for you. He is backing up his intent with real, hard, tangible proof. He is not saying, I'll think about it. Do you have ears to hear today? For God, the verdict is not still out on you. He's not still weighing his options. He's not waiting to see if you'll measure up or someone better will come along, someone who's a better mom, a better wife, better husband, better worker. He's not waiting. He's already decided. And he's put his money where his mouth is. Right? He said, by the Holy Spirit given to you, he's saying, I want you for myself, right? And I'm willing to pay the price. God wants you to know you don't need to sell yourself anymore to lust or gossip or selfishness or cutting corners to get ahead and prop yourself up. He wants you to stop talking to other sellers. Quit trying to prove your worth through work and beauty, your rightness, your skill. I've already paid the price. I've already called you valuable, the apple of my eye, man, my portion in life. God calls his people his portion. You ever read that? He looks at you and says, you're the bit I want. This is unreal. It boggles my mind every time I see it when we read scriptures of God calling his people his treasure, us. You met us. You know us. And yet he calls us his, dude, at the cross, transaction happened. Dude, something happened. He says, I've already paid the price. When Jesus willingly laid down his life, and the New Testament writers come along and say things like, he ransomed you. It means he was given in your place. What's the role of the Holy Spirit? Well, it's to make real to us what God's already done on the cross. John 16, 14, he will glorify me. He will take from what is mine and declare it to you. Make it known to you. Dude, that's the role of the Holy Spirit, yo. To take what Jesus has already done and make it real inside you, right? And dude, dude, it's it's mysterious. The Holy Spirit is the means by which the maker of heaven and earth communicates a very simple message to you. And it's as deep as it is mysterious. And I honestly don't know if all of us can bear to hear it coming from the lips of God. I love you. The love of God has confused and befuddled people for centuries, and we are uneasy with receiving such lavish love. And to prove, he says, to prove my desire for you, to prove that my affections for you are more than words, to prove that I want you more than just verbal commitment, right? I'm going to put my money money where my mouth is, receive the Holy Spirit, right? Is, let's chat, is God's love for you merely words? Does this just seem like religious jargon? Let's be real. I mean, what, like 60, 70% of us? Just, just words. I don't know. Just religious jargon. Come to church, hear some religious jargon. Maybe I feel better. Maybe Chris is weird that day and I feel weird, you know. But is God's love to you more than words? It's a real question, y'all. Are his affections for you dead on the page? You see, it's the Holy Spirit that God, in a manner of speaking, puts his money where his mouth is. How can you be certain that God loves you? How can we be certain that he's not still considering other options? How do we know he'll receive the Holy Spirit? It's a deposit. He gives us the experience of the Holy Spirit. He sends him, he pours him, he fills us with him, right? Do you see what I mean 
when I say you can have all the right doctrine and still miss this, because it's not a matter of intellect, it's a matter of heart. If you find in your heart an ever-lingering, frantic scramble to prove your value to everyone around you, if you constantly feel the pressure to prove your competence, to prove you're lovable, to prove you're desirable, to prove you're cool, if you're constantly trying to establish and protect your own rightness in the conversation, right? If you immediately fall apart when someone criticizes you, if you immediately are offended and defensive when someone tries to correct you, I don't care what you claim to know about God and theology, you've missed what God's trying to tell you through this right now, that he loves you, that he's assigned value and significance to you based on nothing you've done. What does the substitutionary atonement even mean? Doesn't it mean that God has established your rightness through his means? Doesn't it mean that God's valued you, loved you, not based on anything you've ever done? That God has stamped on your head under contract because he wants you. He's paid the deposit and he's trying to tell you something right now, right? And it's that he deeply, eternally loves you. Can we hear it? despite all of our disbelief and sin and apathy that we're so well aware of. So God says the Holy Spirit's a deposit. He seals and is the deposit or first installment of what? The scripture said our inheritance. Well, what's that mean? Well, in the Bible, the word inheritance immediately brings to mind the children of Israel, freed from Egypt, brought to a land flowing with milk and honey. Uh, Leviticus 20, 24, but I said to you, you will possess their land, I will give it to you as an inheritance a land flowing with milk and honey. In the Old Testament, inheritance is almost always talking about land, a place, a destination, a realm, if you will, right? The Exodus is used over and over as an analogy, a picture of what Jesus has done for us. So what's our inheritance as Christians? Well, it's really quite simple. It's heaven. It's heaven, plain and simple. The question is, what is your understanding of heaven? We can't spend too long here, uh, but what are your ideas of heaven? We know that heaven's not fat little naked babies on clouds playing harps, right? When the Bible talks about heaven, it will often use the phrase the day of the Lord or in that day, and then it will start describing what it will be like when God comes back and eradicates evil in all the earth. And it describes things. And so in Isaiah 65, what we read at the beginning of the service, it describes this new heaven and earth. In the last chapter of Revelation, John almost quotes Isaiah 65 when he's telling us what happened, you know? Isaiah says stuff like this about heaven, the day of the Lord, when God will come and make all things new again, the new heaven and the new earth. It says things like this. You know, in that place, you won't hear weeping. In that place, man, God rejoices over his people. Never again will an infant only live a few days. You know how else it described heaven earlier? We read it at the beginning. He says, you're not going to build houses and plant vineyards and then other people come and take them. No. No, you build a house, you're going to live in it. You plant a vineyard, you're going to enjoy the wine. You'll enjoy the fruit of your labor. Um, there's work in heaven. That's, I thought we'd just like hang out on clouds and like, you know, ate ice cream. Not according to Isaiah 65. In the new heaven and the earth, people will build things. There's architects. There's carpenters. There's builders, right? And you get to enjoy that in safety now, in in integrity, in nobility. It says in Isaiah 65, before they call, I'm gonna answer, right? 
I'm going to hear them even before they say my name. Dude, the wolf and the lamb, they're going to feed together, right? No animals. So heaven is described in this language much like earth. <laughs> it's a lot like earth, isn't it? They plant, they build, there's animals, but it's a new earth, and it's absent of one very important thing, sin, and the consequences of sin. It's creation made new again, redeemed by the blood of the lamb, life without fear, life without toil. There's work, but there's not toil. There's a difference, right? right? It's a complete reversal of the fall. That's what heaven is. It's a reversal of the fall, all the consequences. Now, when Jesus showed up, he, was, he had a very interesting take on heaven. See, we tend to think Christianity is kind of this plot to deal with your sins so that you can get to heaven when you die. I just want to tell you, if that's your understanding of Christianity, uh, you're, you have a religion for death. When Jesus came, he said stuff like, hey, guys, the kingdom of heaven, it's close. It's at hand. You can reach out and touch it. Jesus seemed to think the destination had somehow, in some way, become accessible in him, here and now. Heaven, as you think of it, maybe, if you think of it biblically, on earth, right? And here, in Ephesians 1, Paul is riffing off this idea. See, Scripture says the Holy Spirit is a deposit of heaven, it's a deposit of your inheritance. It's a little slice of heaven here and now, given to you via the power of the Holy Spirit. Y'all, the Holy Spirit is a foretaste of what's to come that we get to enjoy and cherish right now, today, Amidst all the darkness and violence and sin in the world, amidst our own depravities and weaknesses and disbelief, he's saying, I want to give you a slice of all things made new right now in your heart. I want the process to start before you die. Before you die. I want newness to begin to spring. I want to reverse the effects of sin and hell and death even now in your heart. Come on, man. It's awesome. Right? This is what the Holy Spirit, why do we get fidgety about the Holy Spirit? Like, give it, come, give, give me, give me. Like, I want him, you know? I want heaven now. I, anger and wrath. Dude, what is, I just, dude, we all have these tendencies, right? We all have these imperfections, character flaws. I tend to be angry. I tend to yell at my kids. I was like killing it for two weeks with my kids. Like, I'm such a good dad. And then this last week, it just ugh, blew it. So impatient, right? Dude, Heaven, God, he's going to fix that in me. Like there's things in my own heart that I, I'm, like, I feel powerless under. Dude, he's gone. Like that's heaven. That's, I want that. I don't want to be a jerk to my kids, right? I don't, we don't want to be trapped in gossip. We don't want to be wrapped up in lust, do we? No, God's saying right now, I want to bring freedom and liberation to you. It's a slice of heaven. And it's through the power of the Holy Spirit, man. It's huge. It's not the spirit of Christ. It's not the Holy Spirit in some vague way. Like we talk about, you know, if someone's really adventurous, we say, oh, he's got the spirit of Lewis and Clark. That's, no, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about Christ himself. The spirit of Christ, him, him coming to dwell in us. The Holy Spirit, guys, is not you mimicking Jesus. It's not you trying to copy Jesus. It's Jesus himself coming in you. 
and manifesting his attributes in you. That's why it's called the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit of Christian discipleship, not the fruit of obedience, not the fruit of character. It's called the fruit of the Spirit for a reason. It's trying to help you understand. He's not, he's not saying, pull up your boots, you know, pull up your ethical, moral efforts and try harder. Dude, he's saying, stop trying, actually. He's saying, surrender to someone else's spirit and presence coming in you and manifesting himself in and through you. That's why we can get to the end of our life in obedience and sacrifice and say all glory, power, and honor goes to Jesus. Because it was always him himself manifesting light and goodness and joy in my heart and life. No flesh glories in his sight. No, it's the Holy Spirit doing that in you and wanting to do that in you now and more. See, he is a deposit. Y'all, listen, a deposit is not an IOU. It's, a deposit is not a different material than the final sum. Got me? It's a piece of the final sum. It's a, slight, it's, a, it's a first installment of your inheritance here and now. Do you think of all the people who would describe their life now as languishing? Think of all the Christians going through their Christian life, trying to be good, trying to obey, trying to work out the stress in their marriage, trying to work out the stress. And God is saying to you right now, I want to give you a slice of what your soul really longs for if you will say yes to it. If you will allow me to fill you, to give you something, right? And it's the same stuff you're gonna get later. The Holy Spirit's the first installment of heaven. It's a taste of eternity. Dude, no wonder. If you read stories about missionaries and throughout history, no wonder the Holy Spirit lights people up, like radically transforms them because God's giving you a little slice of heaven, man. It's his spirit saying, you like that? You just wait. I got a lot more where that came from. Now take your house off the market. Consider yourself purchased, ransomed, redeemed, bought at a price. Quit selling yourself to lust. It will never do it. Quit thinking a person can fulfill you. They will crumble under the pressure of God that you're putting on them. Quit thinking a marriage will fix it. Quit thinking a house will fix it. You're off the market, dude. You're mine. All sorts of implications. God, guys, God doesn't say, look, things are going to be tough, okay? It's going to be hard. Christianity, hard. But if you resist sin, if you walk in faithfulness, if you try to mimic Jesus, just try to copy him. Good luck. <laughs> um, when you die, then you'll get to experience joy and peace and rest. Dude, that's not it at all. That's not it. God gives you a taste of that joy and peace and rest right now, here on the earth. He, he wants to make all things new right now, and he wants to start that process in your heart via the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. God wants to give you peace and joy and self-worth and righteousness and sanctifying power today by filling you with the Holy Spirit. He's a deposit of our inheritance. What an amazing analogy. What a profoundly impactful metaphor if we'll sit with it and roll it around, right? If God's love for you right now today remains in a sphere of unreality, okay? If God's love to you right now when we talk about the love of God, if his affections for you just don't land, you know, just, it's just words to you. There's no power in it. 
I, I, I want to echo a question that comes straight out of Acts 19. Have you received the Spirit since you believed? Dude, if the work of the cross and God's love has just never had any real impact on your life, it like never, never freed you from sin, never transformed parts of your character, never filled you with love and grace, I just want to ask you a biblical question. Have you received the Spirit since you believed? The work of the Holy Spirit is to make real in you what Christ did on the cross. And if it seems to you dead and impotent and having no power, have you received the Spirit? Because he wants to make real what Christ did on the cross in you right now, today. Bring new life here, grace, power, right? So this is what we're gonna do right now. We're gonna sit right where we are and we're gonna pray. We're gonna ask God to come and fill us with the Holy Spirit. And I'm gonna give you time just to talk with God. So I want you right now just to take a position of receptivity before God. We're going to pray. Come on. We're going to transition to a time of prayer. Sit right there.